Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show. In the Delta and in this county, the outcomes for kids in particular are horrendous. Like, you know, the obesity outcomes for kids under five, I mean, it's really, really bad. Like, it's endemic, right? So then I start to think there's this gap, right? There's this huge gap. I'm talking to people that are in their 80s and 90s that are telling me, do you know how to make a mincemeat pie? Okay, well, you have to pick the green tomatoes and then you dry them on the roof, right? You know, I'm going, oh, I always thought it was raisins. No, it's tomatoes. You know, whatever. I'm having this conversation with people about this sort of deep, deep history of how you make these recipes that I love. And then I talk to people that are a generation below. They're like, I haven't made a pie crust in 30 years. Or, you know, oh, just go get you one at the at the store. At the like, Go get a Pillsbury one that has all this shit in it, you know? So there's a gap. There's something, something happened. And you can look systemically at what happened. You can look at why this happened and why this was strategic in many ways. But it, it still exists. This information still exists. Live and in living color for another maybe 10 years, this information exists, right? So I don't know. I don't know what the vehicle is yet, right? And that's what I hope to explore. But I know that it's this this precious moment where you have people that remember how to grow and cook and preserve food that are alive at the same time as people who have never shopped outside of like the, the quick stop. There's a huge opportunity there. So how do you connect that? Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, bringing you in-depth conversations with some amazing people. On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors, into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Michael Leslie Rule is a digital media producer, storyteller, and social scientist. Michael is the owner of Fact Memory Testimony. Embedded in Michael's approach to research, advocacy, and communication is elevating constituent voices through the use of storytelling. She is particularly interested in participatory methods for measuring and documenting social and organizational change, and she has designed and implemented participatory projects on four continents. She uses a story-centric approach to produce multimedia projects and advocacy campaigns. Here's Chelsea's interview with Michael Leslie Rule. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you do a lot of work around food traditions, and you your work is also focused in... You came to food traditions from public health. It's one of your sets of interests. Can you explain that? Can you tell that story? Yeah. Um, so I, I before I did public health, I came from like a performing arts background. So I um, was really interested in stories, and I went to public health school and studied you know, global health and the impact of stories on global health specifically, because I've always been, I guess, preoccupied in a way with 
um, how you see policy created or how you see it enforced and how, um, how infrequently you see people that are impacted by that policy actually sitting at the table or helping to design that policy. So, um, so yeah, so I went to public health school and, um, it was great in many ways. And I think it teaches, it taught me sort of a framework for understanding health more broadly. Um, it was the school that I went to was interested in community development and was interested in, I think in a sort of, um, from a, from a messaging perspective was very, was interested in diversity of opinions. But I think the reality of the situation is that it was, you know, it's, I went to a school that was primarily, um, run by and taught by, uh, professors of medicine who were practicing physicians and they have their own sort of biases towards how much information they know in the academy knows versus people um, that are living within the communities. So, um, yeah, so, Doing work there, um, and and uh, and learning a little bit about indigenous knowledge there um, through Irie, which is at I went to University of Washington, and so there's a group there that's the Indian Wellness Research Institute, I think, um, and they are specifically interested in the idea of sort of both historical trauma and then indigenous knowledge and how that's passed down, and I became, I think, then interested in um, places, you know, globally. Um, that sort of transfer of knowledge um, and looked at that through gender-based violence and looking at stories that women tell their children and especially their sons and sort of how do you how do you transfer information that um, informs cultural norms or informs how people behave basically um, and sort of leap forward five years and doing you know work on a variety of different issues um, I, I decided to come back to the states after several years living um, abroad uh, to focus specifically on communities that I had a direct investment in and for me that was the Mississippi Delta um, where my mom was born where my grandmother was born sort of six or seven generations of my family that I had we, we, I just, my mom had broken ties in many ways with the Deep South, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and I, three or four years ago, began going back, um, and, uh, talking to my, what we talk about as kinfolk. I have no idea really how I'm related to people, but I am related and it's a small community. Um, and in those conversations, in order to get access to information about the history of my family and about the history of the town, I often spoke about food. We would often sit down and start to talk about food or we would talk about culture over food. Um, and I was struck by how my public health education had really prepared me for this, this kind of, um, to approach the South and specifically the Southeast and rural communities from a position of, of deficit, that this was, they were lacking something that they were, you know, they, they needed something basically that this knowledge didn't exist. And through these conversations, I realized that it does exist, that it's, that it's there. And there's a question about transference. And there's also a question about, um, I hate the word empowered. Um, I think it's, it's something about, uh, valuing something about how do you work with communities that have this incredible information, both agricultural and culinary information. Um, how do you work within those communities and create tools to transfer information that really value uh, value the fact that this is not an outside intervention, that everything they need, all of the tools are actually in their community. So I think in a windy way, that's, is that good? Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, let's back up a little bit. Great. Uh, so, I don't really understand what public health does mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. When I think of like progressive public health mm-hmm. projects, I think of like 
those stoves or whatever that go oh, the yeah it, limiting was, smoke inside mm-hmm. right smokeless stoves yeah. right smokeless stoves so that would be like so people would not have lung disease or something in mm-hmm. their kitchen and when I think of not very uh, forward thinking public health projects I think of like or, or maybe more standard I don't know maybe not very forward I think I think of like lots of um, you know I think of water and like water. Sanitation. Sanitation. And I think it's kind of these systemic things that I think are very important, but oftentimes for me, like, feel um, really intricately linked with the state and feel really top down and feel like a lot of times they're kind of a one size fits all sort of approach to how to keep people from dying, I guess. I mean, it's not even necessarily about quality of life. Lots of, lots of times. Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I uh, I think I know what you're saying. I think, so when I think about public health, I think broadly. I think expansively. I think of, when I think about food and nutrition, I think about it as a systemic issue, but I also think about it as being very individual to the community that you're in. And that's what I think is interesting about the idea of public health, is that you can have a very systemic conversation. You can talk about, you know, the impact of Monsanto, you know, on uh, communities of color. You can talk about them, you know, specifically you can talk about lobbying and how that impacts sort of food that's available in a state or in a, you know, in a community. And at the same time, you can also talk about, so if on a behavioral level, when you're talking about individual and family behavior, that is not a system-wide intervention. I mean, you can do messaging at the state level about, you know, working on diabetes or whatever, right? But if you're not talking about people's individual, not individual, but family cultures, um, community cultures, you're not talking about um, honoring the fact that people have an entire food tradition that's based in not only history, but memory and like, you know, in sort of a sense of self, like a deep sense of your identity and yourself is around food, like for everybody, even if you don't, even if you're vegan and you don't, you know, I just said if you're vegan and you don't eat, but basically, you know, even if you come from a tradition where it's a, it's about, you know, a, either, either a tradition of extreme affluence where it's about being very choosy about what you eat or a position of extreme sort of deprivation and poverty where you don't have any choices. People always have this very deep embedded sense um, of food. So when we talk about, I think you're right to say, I think a lot of energy and time is spent on doing this sort of um, one message meets every, you know, the sort of painting with a broad brush saying, you know, we're going to spend millions of dollars on creating one campaign that's going to serve all of these people. But I think that's part of what I think find really fascinating is that we know that that doesn't work, you know, because people come from different places. We're all sort of coming from different perspectives and looking at this message in very different ways. And for some people, some people, it's life or death about giving up your culture. So these two things are held equally. Like you can die from diabetes, but what does it mean to sit at a table with your great grandchildren and not be able to eat the food that you've eaten for your entire life as part of this celebration, right? I think what's interesting to me is what, if we recognize that, that there's something important about the tradition itself, about sitting, about cooking those things with like my great aunt cooks with her great, great grandchildren. She's, she cooks with them. They come over, they're frying food and she sits on a chair and she tells them what they need to do, right? For her not to participate in eating that food would be heartbreaking. It's like, you know, so how do you navigate that? You know, how do you, how do you talk to people about that? Which is, to me, is also about public health. Well, so that was my, thank you for making that a little bit more articulate. I, I was trying to describe my sort of clunky knowledge of public health because when I think about storytelling, I think about specifics, mm-hmm. right? And I think about these really 
I think about culture, but I especially think about very individual experiences of life mm -hmm. and how sometimes they exist in these bigger cultures and sometimes they exist in these really... Family. Right, mm -hmm. right. Very small or even individual mm -hmm. ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, how do those two things meet in your work? Um, you know, I think, I, you know, I, my happy place is, is working on stories. I like to sit down on someone's couch or at their kitchen table and, and specifically in the Delta with this work, you know, I, I've been really lucky to get, I think partly because of family name, I get some, there's some familiarity, um, and some acceptance about this person that has, you know, on the face, on face value, like I have no connection with the South, you know, I'm, I'm a Northerner. I'm like immediately recognizable as not being from the community. And I've been given this, this tremendous access, um, for me, it, for me, it's, it's the, I think you said early, oh, sorry. I think the top down idea, but I think it really is this thing that emerges from the bottom, right? You start with a story and the story for me, the story at the kitchen table starts to sort of get me thinking about these other, either other strands or other things that I've heard about, um, and eager to sort of relate it's like to validate in some way, right? I want to find some triangulation or some way of validating, like, how does this story fit into this larger narrative? And if it doesn't, why is that? So where is this narrative coming from? So for me, it's a way of becoming critical of this other broader narrative about who these people are. Um, a specific, I mean, for me as a, as a Black woman, this sort of desire to not be caught in believing um, these statistics about who I am or who I'm going to become as an elderly black woman, you know, when I grow up, grow further. Um, for me, there's something that um, is deeply personal to me about that. And so, I mean, you could say public health, right? But for me, in this instance, it's private health. It's about, you know, it's about th these stories are informing who I want to become, right? And how what and what beliefs I hold about this community that is very deeply a part of my my past and of my family. Yeah, so I think something to think about with this is that um, you were talking about this idea of how health is oftentimes seen as life and death in these uh, in these big ways, right? In these uh, structural ways, in these systemic ways. So eat more vegetables, uh, drink clean water, um, and then it's not seen as life or death when your aunt can't participate, your, your great aunt can't participate in this cooking tradition or mm -hmm. whatever. And, but both really do have these dire consequences and also these incredible rewards, right? So um, it feels good to drink enough water, mm -hmm. but it also feels essential to your being to cook with your great grand mm -hmm. nieces and nephews, right? Mm -hmm. So how do these, like, in this work for you, is there this untangling or this... I don't find those things to be at odds with one another. And I think that that is part of this. That's part of the critique in some ways. That's part of like really taking the time to listen to people. Um, and I think an example of that, like the fruits and vegetables idea is sort of this idea that you're going to eat salad. Like often the, um, the example is a cold salad. We're like the West is really, that's the only place where people eat cold food, like, you know, or eat cold vegetables in particular. 
Um, so, you know, that's, you know, you travel all over the world, you live all over the world, and people, people have disdain for it. It's like it's not healthy, it's not good for you. There are entire traditions around health, including Chinese, you know, Chinese traditions about not eating cold food, you know. So this, this example is, this example is that if you don't eat, the, the image is of this salad bowl and that this is what it means to be healthy. But if you talk to people, you realize that people eat collard greens, they're like making cabbage, they have, you know, green beans. All right. We just got interrupted for a second by a trash truck. Yeah. So we were talking about how these two, the, you know, the different ideas of health are not antithetical to each other. Mm, yeah. And then it's about, yeah. So I was just going to say that in the public health model, often when we talk about food and nutrition, it's very um, restrictive. It's very like it's in there providing very limited examples of what behavioral change might look like. Um, and it's kind of. Um, they're severe examples. And so this idea of eating vegetables as raw vegetables, you know, carrot sticks and things, that that's not the only option. And there's actually no reason for them actually be selling that option. It's It seems to be, that's more, in, in my mind, I think that's more about placing excessive value on one particular way of thinking about eating, um, which is really a white, affluent, Western <laughs> way of eating. And there are so many other ways to think about eating healthy vegetables, eating vegetables every day. But that's not really, that's not part of the broader sort of message, especially in the United States, that we're sending out, right? We're saying if you don't eat like people that live in Boston and have access to whole foods, then you're not being healthy. Um, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work in, in, in the, in specifically in this community in the South. What does work and what is interesting is when you have nutritionists that are from the community that are talking in real terms about the recipes that they know that they themselves grew up with um, and that the the household that they're visiting grew up grew up in and you talk about uh, whether or not you need to have salted pork in the cabbage for example when, you know um, and what would you substitute that with not just just eat the pork with no no seasonings like what would the seasonings actually look like and often you find that the oldest person in the house actually knows how to prepare the food in another way because they know how to grow the food because they were doing that on you know as slaves as, as slaves as um, sharecroppers um, on you know they have they have private small family gardens most people have a garden you know but in not the way we have gardens in California, like they have expansive gardens because people have acres of land around them. Um, people are growing their own vegetables and that knowledge comes from this older generation, including preparation. And like, what do you do in times of scarcity, for example, is, you know, would be an interesting starting point when you talk about what needs to be in a recipe and what doesn't. We were talking about resiliency. This idea that traditions are static is, I think, also part of that myth that you're mm -hmm. unpacking, right? So people have been making these recipes for a long time. People know how to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. Like People know how to feed the right, feed themselves the right food for who they are and where they live and what's available. It's not like, in some ways, I think this is not rocket science. Yeah, it just right? has to be introduced. Yeah. But so do you only make one? Uh, do you only make a recipe one way? Like, Well, that's, I mean, I think that's that's part of what makes... I mean, when you when you ask when you when you ask someone how to make uh, what like chicken livers and rice or something, right? You ask someone. Everybody has their own way of doing this, right? When you're in small communities, especially communities where you know the woman on the corner was the teacher for so and so, who you know, there's this sort of this. There are these dynamics basically that evolve over time. These these sort of um, cultural uh, cultural community ties. People are really honest about who makes the best thing, 
you know, who, who makes the best thing and why they think it's the best thing. Or they'll say, well, if you like peach cobbler with crust on the bottom, this is who you need to talk to. But if you like it, the other, you know, there's, there's some, it's, there's an appreciation for how recipes change and how they're unique to different people. Right. Um, so I think, I mean, that's one thing. Yeah. Recipes are not static, but the other thing is that this assumption that it's a, it's a, a linear transmission of information that it just goes from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next as this unchanged thing is totally ridiculous. When it gets to this idea of authenticity, which I think people talk about in communities of color, and the states in ways that they don't with other, with sort of white mainstream communities. And I find that this idea that we're static, that, you know, just came directly through slavery. You know, it's just this, it's this horrible antiquated way of talking about people. Um, which is one of the reasons that I think when you look at a public health conversation, you get into this, this is the only way to cook the food and it's wrong. And there's no space to have a conversation about, you know, the diversity of ways in which it's prepared or how it's prepared in different regions in the South or how it's, pre- or how it's prepared in the North for that matter, like post great, great migration, like what came with people and how did the food change when they came to Chicago or Detroit or Oakland or whatever. Right. Um, so I think there's a more looking at that sort of broader diaspora of sort of African-American food and food traditions. I think within that are so many different ways of preparing food and so many different places to draw on for knowledge as we as we want to and try to address these major uh, community level and, and also systemic right issues. Um, but specifically looking at behavioral issues or something about drawing from within rather than, you know, um, rather than talking about um, what is within as being something that is deficient in some way. And so therefore we have to go outside, you know, and I think also appreciating the fact that we're already outside, like we're all already outside, right? Like we're all interacting with food in many different ways in different, in different cities and different, you know, locations with various levels of access. And that also changes the way food is prepared. Yeah, we live in a globalized world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody is exempt from that. Right. So that is just how it goes. So things mm-hmm. change over time, right? And so what... Let's go back to this nutritionist idea, like these in, in town nutritionists yeah, or whatever. Cool. Yeah. Like, tell me what they do. Tell me what it's like for them to go into people's houses. And like, what are the issues that people are talking about and trying to figure out? So my, and this is in some ways, it's limited experience in the South particular, but again, I'll also speak more, more broadly about what I know. Um, community health workers are often, you know, sort of low, uh, not nutritionists basically, but sort of lower skilled, um, or like lower, less, lesser trained, I guess, academically trained, um, people that are from the community that are recognizable as part of the community. Um, and, they are so hypertension, for example, and looking at sort of limited salt intake is really hard for people that are um, often already in their 60s or 70s, right? Because this is now an entire lifetime of of sort of you know one one experience of food and expectations around food. Um, and I can speak directly about my my great uncle. He's 90, and he's He's phenomenal. He's like amazing. Um, and he taught me to like smoke cigars and drink white lightning, which is moonshine. And like we go to the south and we, you know, we hang out and everything. And it's always sort of, you know, it's been that way. Um, and then a few years ago, he had, he's had heart issues in the past, but he had heart issues um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. And ended up in the hospital and the doctor, the doctors said no more salt, right? Not how much, so no more salt, 100% 
it's not, if someone gave me that, you know, cause I'm, I'm younger and I have a totally different relationship to doctors. So my response would be, I want to actually know, like, I want to know how many milligrams we're talking about. You know, I want to know because I know it's not reasonable to say you're not eating any salt at all. Right. What they mean is no added salt, but added salt to what? Right. Like to, to, are we talking about added salt to like you, you salt in your, your food at the table? Are we talking about specific kinds of food, like eating barbecue probably isn't, you know, the best idea, but barbecue dry or barbecue with sauce and like who made the sauce, you know, are we talking about store sauce or sauce that you made, you know, you're making with tomatoes and maple and, you know, over the stove. So the idea is, it's like the instructions that he received were, one is that they're a form of shorthand. That's just, I think it's incredibly disrespectful to give people, especially older people, um, um, and then expect them then to translate to this entire history, this entire cultural tradition, basically single-handedly. That doesn't really make sense. Community health workers um, take this information that comes from physicians and they help to apply it to the foods that you eat every day. Um, so making distinctions like... Are we talking about the barbecue that my cousin makes behind the house that we have made for several years? Or are we talking about barbecue sauce that's sold in the store that has corn syrup and all of this, you know, added salt in it, right? It's about making distinctions and not um, being so dogmatic, is that, yeah, like about what is and is not allowed. Um, so I think when I think about the community health workers, I think about them sort of having an appreciation for what exists for the value that exists there. Um, and also being a little bit more flexible to what is actually possible, like within what amount of time, like you don't leave the hospital with a diagnosis and then just suddenly change your whole life. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen for anybody. So, you know, what, what does that change look like and sort of how does it happen and where, and also where can you, um, acknowledge people's progress, you know, <laughs> within sort of dietary restrictions in this case, you know, what, where, where do you acknowledge that? And how do you, how do you, how do you, congratulate people, you know, on, on being able to make progress around their own health, um, in the ways that work for them. Right. And I, and I also, I also think, you know, you, you spoke earlier, we were, we were talking earlier about, uh, life or death situations. And I think there's also a really big piece of that. That's about how do you want to live? And we don't talk about that. I think there's this massive assumption that everyone wants to live to 150 and, you know, and I'll do anything I can to get there. But we, we, we sort of, shy away from both in when we talk about physical health and mental health and, you know, and when we talk about nutrition, we don't, I don't think we talk enough about how do you want to exist in the world? Like, how do you want to engage with your family and with other people? And I think for older people in particular, that's something that deserves uh, at least a question. You know, I think, you know, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for, you know, just letting people rot because they don't want to, like, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that, but I think there's something really important going back to this idea of what it means to be sitting on the, on the stool watching your great granddaughter fry fish. Um, I think there's something to be said for what that, what that, what joy that brings, you know? Absolutely. And I think that quality of resilience is really underrated within that too. Right. So I think, everything you say sort of just really complexifies the story of what public health is in somewhere like a, you know, in the Mississippi Delta in a small town would look like, right? Like how have people made it for a long time? What are the things they've done to do that? What are those behavioral choices that exist in this complex web of mm-hmm. things, right? Of access and of tradition and, um, and of all these knowledge bases, right? So, 
I love this idea of, of like salt, of, of taking that out. It's because it seems like such a simple thing, right? It's like don't put salt on your food or whatever. But um, I think about a friend who after he's in his mid-80s and the doctor told him, you can't eat tortillas. You can only eat brown bimbo bread from the store, right? Which is like the air-puffed bread that you get in rural Mexico. And he just said, I can never get full. The problem here is that there's like no nutrition in my food and his wife doesn't know how to cook it. And so she's fighting him about it every single day. And, you know, the she doesn't know how to make the right amount of tortillas now because he's not eating tortillas. It, it throws off this whole ecosystem. bigger ecosystem, mm-hmm. exactly, of how this how this family works. And, I mean, what's balance? Like, where do those stories change? And, like, what like what's health? In a story like that, what's your uncle decide to do? How do you figure it out? My uncle has decided that he wants to. He just turned ninety. We went to. We had a big party for him about a month ago. Um, he has decided that he is going to live to a hundred. He's like, this is what I'm doing. And he said, you know, he he has a new um, love of his life now that he, you know, they they're lovely and they travel around the country together. And he's basically decided he's decided what's important to him. Um, and for him. He misses his white lightning and he misses, you know, his barbecue and he misses, you know, these, these things. But for him, the, we, we talked about like this sort of this, these, these family connections and what that looks like and how it feels and how, what you connect over. Right. Um, and for him, his connection with family has sort of transformed, right? Like he's making all of these trips, you know, he's flying to, he came to see my house when I bought the house. He's like, I'll be on a plane as soon as you get a house. And 10 days later, he was here. I had no furniture, you know, it was just, you know, he was here. And we, we collectively, my mother and my aunt, you know, we're all learning how to, you know, adapt to sort of his food restrictions. And at the same time, in some ways, I feel really grateful that I have the background I do because when he says, oh, I'm, I eat Thousand Island dressing from so-and-so store, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, and that doesn't affect him poorly. You go, oh, okay, well, the, the doctor's obviously not saying no salt at all, and you aren't having some massive, you know, uh, you know, sort of coronary episode because you're having this tiny amount of dressing. So where, how can we, how can we sort of think about that in terms of the amount of salt that you're having during the day, right? So like learning more about, learning more and talking to him more about sort of what, um, what the doctor is saying and what that actually means, you know, and looking at what are the milligrams, like, what are we really talking about in terms of how much salt you can have per day? Um, and like, how can we, how can we creatively disperse that in food so that it still tastes good? So that's, you know, that's what it looks like with my uncle. Um, but, and, and I think it also speaks to having multi-gener, like many generations that are sort of part of this conversation, um, rather than targeting the individual, which I think is also an extreme problem about <laughs> how we talk about behavior. Behavior never happens in a vacuum. And we, and especially in the West, we spend a lot of time talking about you as an individual as responsible for your behavior. And the reality is that, you know, if you're not cooking the meals or if you are cooking the meals, but there are six other people in your house or, you know, um, you have to be able to be flexible to all of those things, right? You're, 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 you're feeding a community. Um, so with my uncle, you know, the, 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 I think the, one of the reasons why so far he's been very successful, um, you know, with, with, uh, this, this new, this new world of like no salt or low salt is in part because he has several generations of people with different experiences that are all sort of helping or, um, exploring this kind of new terrain with him. And I also think he made a choice. 
you know, he made a choice and he was allowed to make that choice. It's not that this hasn't been a conversation. This hasn't been, his choice hasn't been controlled by people around him. I think he, he really got to make a choice about how he wanted to live and he's chosen. Yeah. And so in that town, mm-hmm. what does, what does that look like for other people? I think this really challenges that myth of deficiency mm-hmm. also to, to just hear the story of your uncle, like, he could have also made the choice, like, nope, I love salt, and this is it. Like, I'm 90. Like, yeah, I did it. Like, yeah. this is amazing. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah, I'm that would have been okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm good with this. Yeah, yeah. He could have, right? And that'd have to be respected. I don't think it would have been respected. You know, like, I think people would have been, you know, advocating that he do something else, or people would have, you know, or someone, someone in the family would have hired a health care worker that would have made all the meals, you know, or whatever. This is what happens. Um, I think that's the thing that I'm most interested in about this project I'm working on actually is about, um, is about how do you create models where this, where, where we can start to play with this idea about how do you inform, how do you inform behavior when it's not necessarily embedded in a specific family? So how do you sort of, um, accumulate or collect? Um, and my, you know, I'm positing it through stories and maybe through like this webisode idea, but how do you collect community information and knowledge, um, among specifically elders? Um, and how do you transfer? How do you, uh, transmit that information to others in the community? Um, cause I don't actually know. I don't know what it looks like when you don't have, um, your family or you don't, you're not embedded in a group of people where they're a multi-generational group of people that can help to support your, your choices. Right. I mean, I, I actually, I mean, I do know what it looks like when we think about it as sort of failure, but I'm not sure what it looks like from a success sort of, you know, mindset. Um, and I want to approach it from a success mindset, not, you know, if you were, a, if you're a, uh, if you're like an elderly woman and you're living alone and you're in your seventies um, and you don't have, you know, in the community I'm working with and working in right now, there are always people coming in and out of the house. But if those people are not um, either are, are not by choice or don't have the luxury or don't have the time to really engage with you around food choices, how is it that other people, other young people in the community could engage with you? Like what would be the avenue? How would you create a structure or a system where these people of different age groups could talk to one another and share this information and share this knowledge. So that's what I'm curious about. You know, would that be through stories? Do this, does that have to happen in person? Could it happen through technology? Would it be a mentoring relationship? Would it be a, would it be like a cooking clinic? You know, what would that look like? Um, but that's, yeah, that's actually what I'm interested in. Yeah. And so what do you think? I mean, what could it be? Yeah, that was a whole list of like 80 things. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing, right? The next step for this is the next step is, okay, I've had these stories and I've been completely inspired and amazed and I've met these incredible people and I go to this homecoming thing every year and we lay out all the family foods and it's, I, I'm spending a lot of time with these old people and I'm excited. And then I'm very much aware of the fact that, um, you know, in the Delta and in this County, um, the outcomes for kids in particular are horrendous. Like, you know, the obesity outcomes for kids, um, under five. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's really, really bad. Like it's endemic, right? So then I start to think there's this gap, right? There's this huge gap. I'm talking to people that are in their eighties and nineties that are telling me, do you know how to make a mincemeat pie? Okay. Well, you have to pick the, the, the green tomatoes, you know, you have to pick green tomatoes and then you dry them on the roof of a, of a, corrugated iron 
roof, right? And you dry them out and then that's actually tomatoes, not raisins, right? You know, I'm going, oh, I always thought it was raisins. No, it's tomatoes. You know, whatever. I'm having this conversation with people about this sort of deep, deep history of how you make these recipes that I love. And um, then I talk to people that are a generation below and they don't, either they don't remember or they're like, I haven't made a pie crust in 30 years or, you know, oh, just go get you one at the, at the store, at the, like, go get a Pillsbury one that has all this in it, you know, um, go get, yeah, I don't, I don't make, just get some canned peaches, even though you, you can get, people have peaches on their property, you know what I mean? So there's a gap. There's something, something happened and you can look systemically at what happened. You can look at what happened in these communities. You can look at, you know, you, you can look at, you can look at why this happened and why this was strategic in many ways, but it's only been, what is that? It's only been in that part of the country. Often it's been two generations, but right. So two generations. And then you have these young people in their twenties that are raising little kids, right? And they, they, it still exists. This information still exists live and in living color for another, maybe 10 years. This information exists, right? So I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know what the vehicle is yet. Right. And that's what I hope to explore. I don't know what the vehicle is, but I know that it's this, this precious moment, basically, where you have people that remember how to grow and cook and preserve food that are alive at the same time as people who have never shopped outside of like, you know, the quick, the, the, the quick stop, you know, and you know what, there's a huge opportunity there. So how do you connect that? And what a paradoxical moment, right? right? That will change. Yeah. And is changing every day as yeah. these people grow up and other people die. Exactly. And exactly. And the, the, and what happens once these people die is that you, you, you're more likely to have the, the, uh, the assumption or you're more likely to be taught that your community is broken, that you never knew how to take care of yourself, that you, you know, something is wrong with you. And that to me is one of the, that, I mean, you talk about like data, that's one of the most important things, right? It's like, you have to know that you are valuable and that you come from, you know, that you have, you have value. Um, yeah. And once you have that, it, it transforms everything. Well, and that's what I was going to ask next is this idea. I mean, it's a pretty simple story to debunk this myth of deficiency in a certain way. Sure. Right? You find the right people, you find those, you find this knowledge, it's there, it's not only there, but it's enthusiastic and lots of times it's very emphatic, right? Um, storytelling seems really essential to me, to this, right? And it seems like this really interesting paradoxical moment where you have things disappearing and you have other things emerging. Mm-hmm. And then you have these community health workers mm-hmm. who are coming into people's houses and then who are working with them and kind of acting as these translators from bigger structural mm-hmm. places. And what would it look like to support this ongoing food tradition? But I think that in many ways it would look like a new food tradition or something where people feel like these things don't get lost, but they do get to be adapted and changed into dealing with some of the things that the community actually wants to deal with, Right. Yeah, I mean, I think and this, this is where this is where potentially something. This is where potentially it feeds into a larger advocacy sort of agenda potentially. Um, and I think it's about. Um, and I don't know, you know, in sort of for where I'm at right now in this work in particular. I, you know, in my in the other work that I do, I'm usually hired to do. I, the agenda is clear. Where you know, sort of what what the goal is, right? So your um, the stories are being 
integrated or leveraged or they inform sort of the messaging around this specific agenda. Um, and when you're lucky, the agenda is uh, is informed by people's actual stories and people's lived experience. But we know that that's not always, you know, sort of the case. Sometimes they're just systemic sort of agenda. Um, I think what could potentially be interesting would be to think really um, – I think when I think about sort of how these, how this sort of weaves into a larger either approach or methodology around like systemic change, I think about this community in particular that only has two grocery stores and one really, and um, the marketing of natural quote unquote food and what's actually in that food. And though it's written scrawled with that lovely script that you write when you want to write something's natural, um, that the content, you know, is sugar and salt and nothing else like peanut butter that has, you know, no peanuts or, you know, it's like the third ingredient. Um, I think about advocacy in that terms around in those terms around what's available in the community. And so when I think about sort of a supported sort of how this piece, which I think is a small piece actually, because it's really um, not a small piece. It's about how you behave in your home, basically. I think there's a larger conversation about access um, and what's available um, and and the pressure that can be created when people know that they actually have the ability to they have the ability and the knowledge to actually to feed themselves basically. So then this, this, this grocery store is supposed to be supporting the behavior that they've already adopted. I think that's a supply and demand sort of conversation. Um, um, and I would be curious about that. So when I think about, you know, for me, that's how it, pub- it that's how it feeds into this more systemic change thing is as an example of what happens when, in particular communities like this one, um, you know, and, and there are other communities like this one that sort of have this, this, uh, this, uh, um, this makeup basically in terms of age, in terms of who's, you know, who's living with knowledge and who's, you know, there's, there's right. So to me, what's applicable is sort of what would it look like? Um, what would it look like if, if a community that was able to recognize, um, this incredible knowledge that they have and then to transmit that knowledge to younger people who was able to sort of change behavior on that level um, was also able to make demands in to this sort of small town store around what's accessible to them. So to me, that's how it fits. So, you know, in Mexico after disasters, the federal government's really good at distributing food. Yeah, and the food is... The food's terrible. Yeah. It's got a lot of these same... I mean, rural Mexico has many of these same issues mm-hmm. as the rural South in terms of... There's very limited access to food you could buy, mm-hmm. and there's these rich agricultural and culinary traditions in terms of what people know how to do. So you ask anybody who is over a certain age and is into food where the best food comes from, and they'll tell you it comes from their garden or whatever else... Um, but I think that um, I'm wondering what the structure. So there, so there, there are these like also these community radio stations, and I'm wondering what that would be like to like what would distribution of these stories mm-hmm. look like that would get people excited and get people hungry, mm-hmm. right? Because hunger sort of drives demand in terms of business opportunities, in terms of creating these other structures in towns. Um, with these economies that are very isolated mm-hmm. in certain ways, right? I mean, so I th- there's this very interesting thing in terms of structures of grocery stores, like where there's just distribution chains, mm-hmm. right? right? And these these rural grocery stores, I mean, it's like walking into a different time mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. right? There's, mm-hmm. I mean, things are literally like very old 
it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And they, you haven't seen them anywhere else. And you don't know what people do with them. And you ask people what they do with them and they don't know what they do with them. And, um, you know, like, are there places there where people are kind of putting pressure? Well, there's, I mean, systems. there's, there's the, the, um, farm, farmer's markets mm-hmm. I mean, farmer's markets are starting in towns that are nearby, um, but not in this particular place. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the farmer's market model there, at least, is that, um, the people in Lexington that go to the farmer's market already have a certain level of education. I think in, in the, in the context of Lexington, what I have seen is like bartering is, or people um, exchanging food that they grow on their property for something someone else has, or the recognition that this person has really good collard greens and don't ever buy that at the store because they taste completely different in this place. So I think that, you know, when you look at sort of people that are pushing against that, there's, um, the University of Mississippi has this really amazing program that they're working with black small farmers. That's become sort of a thing in terms of the philanthropic network. People are starting, you know, in the, in the country, starting to focus um, services, health-related services, um, and food-related services, food justice work um, in the Southeast around that in particular, sort of looking at this idea of agricultural knowledge. So I think it's a it's support, you know, it's, it's, they're beginning to have the kind of support in the region that will allow them to come up with some of these innovative sort of ideas and practices and, you know, and try different things out. For a long time, there was no money. The state doesn't have any money. <laughs> the, the county doesn't have any money. So this sort of infuse, this um, infusion, this infusion of money from sort of the, the, the philanthropic and private sector, in, including people that have, are from the Southeast and have made their money there and who are now interested in sort of, you know, investing in communities there. Um, I think that is, that is, that, that in many ways is what will start to buoy and support some of these ideas that are, you know, that are sort of bubbling up. I think what's challenging about that is the idea of agenda and sort of how open um, philanthropy in general tends to be to um, being in a position where they're actually a partner and not setting the agenda. And um, you get back to this thing that we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, which is, um, this sort of this this idea that this is the only way to make systemic change and this is the message that you have to send. So I'm curious to see to what degree that becomes a part of this, you know, this support of of sort of community or grassroots work around food and food justice. But I think it's definitely is happening. Um, but I mean, for example, the, the the farmers market model, you know, we see that all over the country. But in communities where people have very little money or are not traveling, you know, not driving to the farmers market or things, you know. It, that chat changes things or in communities where Mexico is a really good example, parts of Mexico, um, parts of Tanzania where you're growing a cash crop for the rest of the world, but it's almost impossible to get that in, in your actual community. Um, the parts of the South are very similar to that, you know? So, so that challenges this idea of the, you know, the farmer's market with the small farmers that are able to have the land to do this thing and sort of sell these boutique foods. Um, so I think, there's a lot of questions there about that model. And so, like I said before, a barter model might be more impactful and efficient in very small communities to sort of, to, 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 to support the resurgence of that model. Because again, this is not a brand new idea. People have been doing this forever. So how do you support that? Um, looking at co-ops, um, and instead of, you know, not instead of, but also what does it look like? I mean, I've heard some really interesting things from different, totally anecdotal, but <laughs> some really interesting things from, from, from people who have said, we used to share things, but we don't share things anymore. And this is why. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of litany of why can be everything from a personal disagreement to, 
you know, something that happened a hundred years ago and nobody remembers. Um, but I also think that that's, you know, that's something, that's another piece of this, right. That has to do with health. It may not, that, that dealing with, dealing with sort of the, the, uh, dismantling, um, or what is that? Like the, 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 the weakening fiber in some communities, right. Is a different conversation than this nutrition conversation, but it's deeply, deeply connected. Um, and so, so, so yeah. So, I mean, it's like, I'm not really answering your question. I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's sort of expansive. <laughs> well, but, yeah. I think you are answering that question, which is that it's really complicated, right? Yeah. And it doesn't exist without these stories that follow through for me. That feels very central mm-hmm. to all of these things, like to models of uh, market access, which like you just brought up, like, not all markets are for all people Mm -hmm. like that idea just doesn't work like Mm -hmm. that you know like what are these alternative models to to commerce and to access and who supports them Mm -hmm. and who creates them for people and who they actually serve right Mm -hmm. and what does that look like on a scale of 500 people Mm -hmm. versus 50,000 or whatever else so there's those things but is there any market if nobody knows what to do with those collard greens Mm -hmm. right um And so right now, as these older people are dying and these kids are, you know, being raised, is, do you feel like that narrative's true that like these um, traditions are just disappearing or do you think something else is emerging? I think it depends where you are. And again, I think it has a great deal to do with education. I think not necessarily sort of in the academic sense, but I think it has to do with listening. Um, and so I think that's, that, that for sure is where the, um, I think it's the difference between loss, right? Loss and, um, adaptation, um, and sort of transformation <laughs> of recipes and sort of food knowledge is really about who, who you are listening to and who you have you know, who you, who you value listening to. Um, I think it is happening. I think there's, you know, especially when, especially this recently just talking to people that are working with small farmers in particular, it's not necessarily about an edu. it's not necessarily about someone who's coming from sort of an educated academic space, you know, whether, especially through the University of Mississippi and Southern Foodways and sort of groups like that. Um, it, that's not necessarily the connection, although that's how that's, that's been supported is through an academic university sort of setting. Um, you know, ethno, ethnologists going into communities and collecting these stories and learning about food. Um, but I think it's, it's the beginning of valuing um, other kinds of insights and other kinds of knowledge. And I think, um, I think when that, when the, right now the, the, the paradigm is older people with this knowledge that we accept it's knowledge and we accept as being valuable because they're old and they've had this experience and younger people that are educated, you know, right. Um, I think when we're able to turn that to sort of, you know, turn the Rubik's cube a little bit, right. And accept sort of various types of education and knowledge that come from at different ages for different reasons, from different experiences. I think then, then we'll see what you're talking about, right. Then we'll see sort of these, um, a diversity of ways that stories are uh, collected and educate and, and information is collected and absorbed and sort of, you know, that's when we'll see the diversity. I think right now it's, um, you know, even even myself, right? I'm not I'm not really going to hang out with people that are my age. I'm going to hang out with people in their 90s because I find it fascinating because I come from, you know, a pure group that you know. I have I spent enough time with people like myself, basically, right? So 
so when I'm working, I'm particularly interested in in people that I wouldn't, you know, that I that I'm not hearing stories from, sort of on a daily basis. So. And what do you think in terms of in terms of the listeners? Like, if you feel sort of interested in what this would look like in your own life, how would you do that? Like, how do you? That's something. So that was something that early, early days when I was first starting to ask questions. I was thinking about how amazing would it be if there was a template for this? Like, how amazing would it be if this was part of? You know, first for me, it was about learning about where my family came from. This was not about. You know, and, and, and like I said, food was an amazing way to start a conversation with people that really wouldn't talk to me about anything else. So we'd start to talk about food or we'd start to make something, which I think is also part of it. We'd make something. And while we were talking about what we were making, they would tell me stories about the history of this, either the food or their own history. And education was a huge part of that, talking about which foods went together and these, these really crazy tests that kids used to take in Mississippi where they would say um, it was about... Uh, What's, what's that thing where you have to like match, um, like the, the, like the spoon with the kind of food or like a fork, a fork and a spoon? Like, what do you use for each thing? Like these really ridiculous tests. Um, and one of them, or, or like cornbread goes with, um, like what do you eat cornbread with, right? And there were these assumptions and it was supposed to be like this intelligence test. But with kids, with black kids in particular and black Southern kids, there are very, very specific ideas about which foods are eaten with which thing and at which time. And so they were failing these tests. Um, And it was a disaster. And they were saying that the kids were stupid and like all this stuff. And so I have all of these recordings of these older people in their seventies talking about how, (laughs) how bizarre, you know, she's now in education. Like if she went on to do a master's and things like that, and then now lives back in Mississippi. And she was talking about how bizarre it was to now reflect on those things and realize that outside of the South, there's a completely different way of like understanding how food, like which are vegetables, things like that. Like what do you consider to be a vegetable? Totally different answers, you know, like are collards a vegetable or green beans a vegetable and that those are actually different, like, you know, they're because it's like a cabbage. So that's different. Like, so, you know, just a lot of, a lot of, um, that, which is completely, completely, completely off track. And I can't remember the question, but anyway, yeah. The question was, how would I do this? Oh, right. So I think, I think it would be, and this is long, you know, like, I think this is where you, you test approaches and then you see for yourself if you can actually do it, not five times, not 10, but 50 times, you know, and if it really works, right. And then how are these useful to people, you know, and then how do you share these stories? I'm so far from that. Like, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm thinking, let's have a dinner and, um, and make some food and project the sound of people telling you what the recipe or cook the recipe live, you know, with a dinner. I don't know that's sort of where I'm at. Right. I think it would be really, really exciting to think of this idea of people that are like a story collection template around food and being someone who um, is interested in a part of your family history and to create an approach that was sort of replicable in some ways for how you could go into your family history or how you could go to the town where your family comes um, from and investigate and explore your history through asking these questions about food to give people sort of a place to um, start from, you know? And, you know, when you kind of blow that out as even if it were... 10 people that decided to do this, what would it be like to have just a completely different way of viewing the history of certain locations in the United States or around the world that was completely informed by people's, you know, both familial sort of line and culinary history, but people's interviews and stories with, with these, you know, these ambassadors, basically. 
Yeah. Well, let's, let's end it there. That's great. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Perfect. Great. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.